Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Roundtable, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers and investors in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion that we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Now, here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. Welcome back to another edition of Top Traders Roundtable, a podcast series on managed futures. My name is Niels Kostrup-Larsen, and I'm delighted to welcome you to today's conversation with industry leaders and pioneers in managed futures brought to you by CME Group. And today, I am very thrilled to be joined by Andrew Lowe, who is a professor at the MIT Sloan School of Management and director of MIT's Laboratory of Financial Engineering, as well as the founder and since 2018, the chairman emeritus at Alpha Simplex Group, and of course, the most recent winner of the Managed Futures Pinnacle Awards. I'm also joined by another veteran of this industry, namely Saul Waxman, who is the founder and president of Barclay Hedge. First of all, welcome and thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join me to explore some of the things that goes on behind the scenes in the managed futures industry. Now, before we jump into today's topics, let's start out by you sharing a little bit of a short version of your background and, and how you got to where you are today. And if I can kick off with you, Andrew, tell us a little bit about your journey and how that's led you to combine economic theory with practical applications within the investment management industry. Well, first of all, thanks very much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here with you and with us all. Um, I got my start really through uh, academia. I um, got my PhD in economics, and right from the very start, I got really interested in financial economics, applying mathematical concepts to making market predictions and trying to understand the risks underlying various different aspects of the financial system. Sometime in the 1990s, I began doing a bit of consulting and really started applying my ideas to actual practical settings. And in 1999, I thought, well, gee, you know, it really makes sense to take some of these ideas and apply them in a much more direct way by starting up my own company. So I founded the uh, company Alpha Simplex Group with some of my former PhD students and, and the consulting colleagues and have been applying these ideas ever since. So that's really the, uh, the background for uh, how I got involved in this industry. Yeah, that's great. How about you, Sol? I'm curious to know what led you to start your business back in 1985 and, and what's kept you going for all these years? Well, first of all, Niels, thank you very much. Andrew, I am honored to be on a panel with you. I've been a great admirer of your work for a long, long time. Thank you. Uh, the way that I started, I used to trade my own futures account back in 79 when gold, sugar, copper, and everything else was going to the moon. I started trading. I would have my results were very mixed. And then at one point, I guess it was about the end of 84, 
I went, I was going through the, those inevitable losing streaks and I had a fundamental question. And that question was, does anyone make money trading the futures markets or is it all a casino set up for the benefits of the exchanges? Hmm. In other words, was it a sucker's game? And my self-image did not allow for me to consider myself a sucker. So I stopped trading and I looked into it. I researched it a little bit. And that's when I first learned about CTAs and disclosure documents and how you could see by reading a disclosure document exactly how much money a CTA had made or lost. And that's when I decided to get into the business. Initially, we were set up as a pool operator. And then after I made a few mistakes on picking the wrong managers for uh, all of the wrong reasons, decided to get more on the database side. And I've been there ever since we first started. And had we continue to survive is real simple. I just never gave up. Yeah. No, absolutely. That's a great story. Well, thanks for sharing that. Now, our conversation today will focus on a number of different topics within the managed futures industry and perhaps a few that will fall a little bit outside of this. And so to kick things off in a slightly different way, I want to come to you, Andrew, first and ask what you think of when I say Rabbi Mahoney, Rabbi Mahoney, Rabbi Mahoney, and I hope you know what I'm referring to <laughs> so that our listeners don't think that I'm completely lost it at this stage. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for bringing that up. That comes from uh, one of my stories that I've wrote about in my book, Adaptive Markets. It's an idea about thinking about financial markets more like a biological ecosystem rather than a physical system. As you may know, most economists suffer from this disease that I call physics envy. We wish we had three laws that explain 99% of all behavior the way the physicists do. And in fact, we have maybe 99 laws that explain only 3%. And so the idea behind adaptive markets is that we really have to think about these financial market dynamics as coming from human interactions. And trying to model those human interactions is really critical. So the Rabbi Mahoney story really has to do with the fact that I heard many years ago about a technique for getting parking in Harvard Square. It's a terrible, terrible challenge to drive a car into Harvard Square because there's never any parking. And so for, for years, I just decided not to do it. And uh, a friend of mine said, well, you know, if you use this following algorithm, before you go to Harvard Square, you utter the incantation, Rabbi Mahoney, Rabbi Mahoney, Rabbi Mahoney. At that point, you should be able to go to Harvard Square and get a parking. And the amazing thing is this algorithm actually works. Uh, <laughs> but the more interesting reason is why it works. Exactly. Uh, it, it works because it changes the way we behave. It changes our expectation for getting a space. Because now, once you utter the incantation, you must somehow in the part of your brain believe that you might be able to get a space. And that changes the way you drive, it changes how you look for parking, and magically, you actually increase the chances of getting a space. So it, it really says that human behavior can actually change our reality. Sometimes, sometimes things need to be believed in to be seen. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And do, do just our curiosity, I mean, do you think that belief always precedes action, so to speak, and possibility? Well, I think it's something that happens simultaneously in many cases. You know, our beliefs uh, have an impact on our behavior, but our behavior has an impact on reality, and that reality shapes our beliefs. So it's kind of a feedback loop that is happening and updating all the time. And unless we're aware of that, it's very easy for us to get misled by various kinds of market events and ultimately end up down a rabbit hole of behavioral biases that ultimately end up hurting us in our investment strategies. Yeah. Well, I look forward to finding out whether this little chant also works finding a parking place here in Switzerland. So we'll, we'll, you we'll have try to go back to that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want to talk about narrative of finance and investing because clearly since the financial crisis, finance as an industry has received a very bad reputation in most people's mind. And Often it's criticized, and I'm not suggesting that it's not deserved, some of it, but the industry that we all represent is also a place where a lot of good innovation takes place. So I want to start by talking a little bit more about each of you and, and your experience sort of through your careers and, and the narrative about finance and investing. And and maybe I can come to you, Sol, first a little bit. I mean, you've been reporting on the managed futures industry and the hedge fund industry for decades. And how has your narrative changed over these years? And perhaps I can broaden the question out and ask a little bit how you've seen other financial media change their reporting on the alternative investment industry. Well, I would say in my mind, the biggest change has been the increase in understanding on how to separate alpha from beta in an alternative universe. And I don't mean an alternative universe like you would read about in right. Superman comic books, <laughs> in, in the futures area and the hedge fund area. And that early on, what everyone used to regress performance against was a stock index. And I, I don't know the reason why that is. Maybe they looked at S&P 500 as an alternative investment or what have you. But a stock index, as we know, has no relevance to the performance of a CTA. Maybe a little relevance, a little more relevance on the hedge fund side. But if you calculate alpha by regressing against the stock index, you have a number that is absolutely meaningless. And over time, and we're seeing it more and more now in terms of smart beta strategies, investors, students of the market have come up with, I think, much better ways to approximate the underlying for want of a better term, alternative betas that are used by managers within their trading methodologies to earn return. The obvious fallout from this is that the amount of return that's attributed to alpha has decreased over the years, and you have more and more people, I believe, competing on the, on the beta side, which makes the environment a whole lot more competitive. And I, I would say that that's probably the biggest change that I've seen over time. That's what I see. 
Sure, sure. I, I would love to hear your thoughts uh, on this, uh, Andrew, as well. Well, you know, I couldn't agree more with Saul that the idea of separating alpha from beta has been really revolutionary. In fact, I, I would go so far as to say that that's had a, a major impact in the entire financial industry, not just in managed futures. And part of that is really the democratization of finance that was really begun by academics like Harry Markowitz and Bill Sharp and others, showing that you can create these relatively passive investment vehicles that actually earn reasonable rates of return for investors. Uh, that began in the 1950s and 60s, and we're still seeing that kind of a trend towards this type of uh, passive management going on. What, what I see, though, is a little bit uh, of a slightly different perspective than Saul. That's certainly a phenomenon that uh, he and I both observe, but my interpretation of it really comes from this notion of adaptive markets. Uh, in other words, I, I see these markets as various different species interacting with each other. And the species that Saul is referring to is this uh, notion of passive uh, investment vehicles. The creation of ETFs and futures and various different passive investment portfolios, that's actually changed the dynamics in, in relation to the other species like active managers. So uh, the whole process by which these markets uh, have evolved is really fascinating. And it really has changed the way that we interact with each other. Managers that don't uh, really understand this kind of interaction are really at risk of becoming extinct. So it's become a much more complex and competitive environment than, than ever before. Yeah, yeah. Staying with you, Andrew, just a little bit longer, I've heard you talk about the importance of language and the and environment when it comes to creating new behaviors. And I think we can all agree that the environment in the financial markets have changed dramatically in the past few years. And here, I'm in particular thinking of the level of volatility we've seen in markets and perhaps first and foremost, the lack of volatility in the US stock markets, at least until quite recently. So share with us why is it so important and what are the risks that you see from a change in, in market environment like that? Well, in fact, you bring up a very important point. The volatility of financial markets has become much less predictable than before. So you're right that volatility is quite low relative to historic levels. But I would argue that the volatility of volatility is actually quite high. And mm. that really suggests that we, we need to look at another dimension uh, of risk and something that I think very few of us are prepared to do. Part of the reason why volatility of volatility is high is because we now see geopolitical events playing a much more important role in financial markets really ever since the financial crisis. Prior to the crisis, it was rare that you got major central banks involved in the kind of interventions that we see today. But since the financial crisis, it's actually become expected for central banks and governments to start intervening in financial markets directly. So you now have very large players that feel no hesitation to engage in the kind of activities that have direct impact on market dynamics and therefore volatility can be actually affected to a great degree. Just over the last few months in terms of current events, when there are concerns about trade wars or threats with various different geopolitical entities because of disagreements and 
concerns regarding policy, all of those issues now factor into markets in a much more direct way than over the previous 10 years. I completely agree with, with both of you about this alpha, beta, and so on and so forth. But in terms of bigger themes, I'm just curious. I mean, have any of you started seeing what the next big narrative could be going forward, so to speak? I mean, is there any any new things on the horizon that might become sort of the next big talking point? I don't have an answer to that question. Sure, sure. Uh, but I, Andrew, if I may, I, I have a question for you on what you had just said with regards to the increase in of volatility of volatility based on geopolitical events. Do you feel that this is, and you, you were talking about it the last few months, but I remember going back for the last several years, while the U.S. was still in, had a policy of keeping interest rates low, we saw managed futures did not do well. And a lot of what I would hear was that although you have all these markets that are different from one another, the correlations came together because, in effect, there were just two trades, risk on, risk off. And in that context, things would get very volatile. Do you see that in the same way as what we are seeing now? Or is that, do you think that was something different? Well, you know, someone once said that history may not repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. And <laughs> I actually think that there's a lot of rhyming going on right now. In other words, I, I do think that we live in a unique economic environment. And so there are things going on today that really didn't exist 10 or 15 years ago. But the mechanisms by which those various different unique challenges have emerged, they have very much the same impact on financial markets. So one example is this notion of a trade war. We've actually enjoyed a rather long period prior to the most recent time where we've engaged in open trade with various partners around the world. And one of the reasons that mega economies like China and India have emerged as real forces in the 20th and now the 21st century is because of, of international trade. So this idea of a trade war, that's actually pretty new. Obviously, there have been trade wars in many, many, many times in the history of the world. But the difference is today because of the nature of the way we interact with various different economies, the, the fact that we are engaged in, in trade at the speed of light, if you will, because of the internet and all, all the kinds of connectivity we enjoy across these various different trading regions, uh, the threat of a trade war, the mere threat uh, of a trade war is enough to actually cause businesses to pull back and to change the way that they invest in their infrastructure. So we now have technology enabling all of these various businesses to react much more quickly. And I think that's what we need to worry about. And that's the new kind of perspective on how these old themes are emerging. Yeah, I mean, you both talk about, or I think it was you, Sol, brought it up about the low interest rate environment and how that has created certainly some challenges for, for many investment styles, including a sort of managed futures in, in, in the broader scheme of things. I was just wondering, from your point of view, Sol, what have you seen or have you noticed anything, style drift or anything else, that is going on among managers maybe to to kind of compensate for the lack of opportunities that we've seen in in some of these strategies? 
partly because of low volatility, but also partly maybe because of, of, of low interest rates? Well, the, the one thing that I've seen that at the time looked the most optimistic was the willingness of firms, primarily the larger firms that were able to do research, was the willingness to get into more exotic futures markets where there were regulatory issues, financial issues, liquidity issues. And what they were finding is that because these markets were thinly traded and they weren't widely participated in by their competitors, that these markets still reacted to more or less traditional trend-following methodologies. And I assume that over time, these advantages would be arbitraged away. I haven't been following it that closely to really know any longer. But uh, that was one of the things that I saw. And I think when you look at different approaches to trading, if a market is going up, everybody's long. And when that market turns, as it it certainly does, people are going to get hurt. And I think that's a lot of what we've been seeing as well that's been taking away from performance. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, there's one aspect that Saul mentioned that's worth observing about today's markets, which is that the rise of passive investing and all of the various different index products, what that means is that when markets go down, we now have a much larger shared experience of loss because now more and more people aren't invested in the same thing. And so that's sort of the downside of the move towards passive investments. Uh, it's bought, brought some great benefits to many people and allowed us to invest in a much more a much broader way across these larger asset classes. But at the same time, when there is a market downturn, it means that we're going to be crowding for the exits all at the same time now. And what about demographics, Andrew? I mean, the markets have gone up. There's been massive inflows in, in, in these passive products, not not least because there's been a lot of people just putting money in. But as baby boomers you know, start to retire in bigger force the next four or five years, I mean, does that in itself... I think there are other issues with having so much money in in passive investing or in, in mutual funds that I can see as a concern. But but just the demographic, is that something you've spent any time on? Well, I've certainly looked at that and I'm quite concerned about it. You know, you and Saul both talked about the low interest rate environment that we've been in. Well, think about what that means in a situation where you've got the baby boomer generation that retired and is really thinking about their fixed income assets supporting their retirement years. In a low interest rate environment, it becomes much harder for that to happen, and it creates all sorts of pressures on the economy and on the consumers that are trying to deal with these issues. So demographics plays a huge role. And compared to the United States, you know, China and India have a very different workforce that is in the process of emerging into the middle class, so that the, the rise of the middle class in China and India have also had huge impact on labor markets and on the international competition. Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly these points we talked about in low interest rates, low, you know, low volatility, I mean, they're, you know, certainly must have had a an impact on on some of the economic theories that you've spent 
a good part of your life studying and teaching, namely the efficient market and the adaptive market hypothesis. But perhaps you need to take us back a little bit to our school days and explain the basics and the differences behind these very important financial frameworks. And I want to jump to a question that I think also a lot as I meet, you know, within institutional investors around the world. And it's just the question of, you know, what do investors really want? So if you can sort of combine some of your thoughts on 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 these two topics. Sure, I'd be happy to. There's a really interesting dynamic between academic theories and market practice. For a very long time, financial market practitioners have been uh, obviously managing investor money and have done quite well in many cases. But there's always been this skepticism on the part of academics that the kind of fees that are being charged by professional money managers really may not justify the performance that they're providing to their investors. And so in the 1950s and 60s, a number of academics started looking at this. And Gene Fama, University of Chicago professor and Nobel Prize winner, was one of the earliest to really take a hard look at the data to try to understand what it is that professional money managers are providing to their clients. And a combination of Fama and some of his students and colleagues, as well as Paul Samuelson at MIT, they formulated this notion that, you know, markets are pretty efficient in the sense that it's hard to make money and information that is out there and relevant for net for financial markets gets incorporated into prices very, very quickly. In which case, there's not a lot of value added by professional money managers because if the value could be easily gotten, it would have already been incorporated into market prices. So this notion that prices fully reflect all available information, this notion of markets being efficient, that really came out of the academic literature and uh, Fama was awarded the Nobel Prize for it and justly so. It's a really important idea and for for quite a few decades, it actually was the way of thinking among academics and eventually uh, a number of market practitioners realized the wisdom of that approach and then adopted it and created the whole passive uh, investment vehicles that we now see as a you know, multi-trillion dollar industry. The work that I've been doing recently is to try to understand how efficient markets relate to all of the behavioral anomalies that the psychologists and experimental economists have come up with. They argue, of course, that markets are driven not by logical deliberation, but by fear and greed, the kind of animal spirits that John Maynard Keynes wrote about uh, decades ago. And so if you believe that markets are driven by these kinds of irrational behaviors, then all of these kinds of efficient market arguments go out the window. And what I've been trying to do is to demonstrate that there's actually an important middle ground. Markets are efficient most of the time. Every once in a while, human behavior ultimately overwhelms the kind of rational deliberation that efficient markets are based on. And we do see periods of fear and greed that ultimately take over. But it's not one or the other. It's really both. We we have both phenomenon going on at the same time. And so the question that we should be asking is not so much, are markets efficient or are they not? but rather what is the degree of efficiency at a point in time and what are the different species in the marketplace that are working against each other to try to rule the roost and at which point do we see market efficiency overtaking the forces of fear and greed or the forces of fear and greed overwhelming the kind of efficient deliberations that give us rational market prices. 
Now, I was just saying beforehand also that, you know, one of the questions that I'm trying to sort of come to terms with on, on my journey uh, meeting these investors is what, what do they really want? And I'm going to come back to you, Andrew, on this because I know you have an, an interesting little thing you do when you talk to people. But I want to go to you first, Sol. And just, you know, since you track all these investment strategies, so you probably have somewhat of a good bird's eye view of the various strategies that appeal to investors and how this shifts over time. And perhaps you have some kind of an opinion about you know, why we see these shifts and, and maybe what, you know, where are investors looking at the moment in terms of alternative strategies, if, you know, and, and you know, when they don't put all their money into the passive products we, we just talked about? Well, at the risk of everyone finding out how unsophisticated a thinker I really am, I think that for the most part, investors misrepresent what they want. That in spite of all of the verbiage that talks about the importance of diversification within a portfolio, about all of the discussions back and forth between managers and large investors, how the majority of large investors do not believe in trend following, that there's no real strong academic case to be made for that type of approach. I think investors as a rule based on their nature, are trend-following. And by that, I mean what they are looking at or what they favor once they look at everything are the strategies that have been profitable most recently. And that the idea that non-correlation or diversification helps. It helps when they make more money and when it doesn't, I think you start seeing a lack of interest in that particular category. Yeah, sure. Andrew, you do, as far as I'm aware, a little experiment, a kind of a survey among the audiences you speak to and where you ask them to choose between four different investments can you, and I know it's maybe hard to do on, a, on an audio only, but can you explain this experiment, what your findings are, and how this fits into the theories and the practical implementation that we see from, from investors? Sure. Yeah, that's a fun experiment because it really shows exactly what it is that investors are looking for. And it actually goes to Saul's point about trend following and why there is a very strong human element to that particular kind of an investment approach. So the chart that I show my introductory MBA class every year is a chart that shows the growth of a dollar invested in four different financial assets. I don't tell them what the assets are or even over what time period they span. I just show them this graph of these four curves that have very different properties. One of them is a line that is almost flat. It really just is very, very smooth, but it doesn't go up very much. So you're not earning a very good return on that $1 investment. The second line is way more volatile. It's got lots of ups and downs, 
But in the end of the graph, it goes much higher than the first line. The third line is even more volatile, lots more ups and downs, but it is even more rewarding. And the fourth line, curiously, lies somewhere in between, but it's much, much smoother. It's pretty much a almost a straight line up. It's, it's more steeply sloped than the first line, but its endpoint is somewhere in between the, uh, the other investments. And when I ask my students to pick which investment they would choose for their retirement money or, or their kids' college education fund or their grandparents' savings, without exception, the vast majority of them will pick that fourth line, that, that straight line up. And in a way, that's a kind of a trend. It's a trend-following type of a strategy. Now, I then reveal to them what these four different investments are, just so they understand what their risk preferences look like. The first line is U.S. Treasury bills. They don't have a particular reward that is very exciting, but they're certainly very safe. And so most of the students, they don't pick that. The second line is the S&P 500. Way more rewarding, but also way more risky. And a few students pick that, but most don't choose that either. The third line is a single investment in pharmaceutical company, Pfizer. Way, way more volatile, but more rewarding. And I get a few more hands that go up. But as I said, the majority pick that fourth line, which turns out to be the returns for an investment in the Bertie Madoff Ponzi scheme. And uh, so they all feel very embarrassed uh, and disappointed that they picked that one. But I tell them that, you know, the reason that Ponzi scheme grew so large is because of human behavior. It's because all of us are seeking that high return, low volatility, or high sharp ratio, as we call it in the industry, high sharp ratio investment. It's human nature. And so part of the role of trend following is to capture that element of human nature and that, that human nature has also supported by a lot of institutional restrictions that essentially create trends. You know, for example, when the Fed tries to manage a smooth landing by changing interest rates so as to allow the economy to grow in a way that doesn't cause massive inflation or, or allows the economy to cool down in a way that doesn't cause a recession, the actions of the Fed to create these smooth landings are actually creating trends in various different market prices. So once we understand that the kind of nature of investing automatically generates these types of patterns, it actually makes sense for investors to take advantage of them in some way. Yeah, no, I mean that that's a great way of, of visualizing these things. But to me, when I when I when I hear that, one thing that springs to mind, and I wanted your thoughts on that, and that is we kind of all crave this this sort of trending behavior, but also, you know, uh, craving this smooth, you know, trend to to participate in. But of course, trend following as a strategy is probably the least smooth investment strategy that you can find among the bigger ones, at least most of the time. How do we um, <laughs> how do we relate these two two things? I mean, how can we better maybe explain to people that you know it's you know volatility and risk are not really the same things, and 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 some people certainly would argue that the more volatile strategies can often turn out to be the more robust strategies because we're not trying to as the Fed is doing, we're not trying to make this smooth uh, curve and then suddenly end up with a huge problem later on in life. 
Well, I think Saul can speak to this even better than I can, having been in the trenches. But let me start by pointing out that trend following offers a unique set of exposures to investors it, it, that's very difficult to get anywhere else. And those exposures really show that they're uncorrelated and in some cases negatively correlated with traditional equity investments. And that's a very important point because the one lesson that we learn from academics throughout the whole process of passive investing is that diversification is really key. But diversification means you want to hold investments that are not highly related to other investments. You want to be able to spread your risk across lots of different holdings. And we know that nowadays, the, the factors that are generating returns are becoming fewer and farther between. In other words, we see that there's a big equity factor, even in, in foreign currency markets, which traditionally had very little to do with equities, that now there's very strong coupling between foreign exchange and stock markets. So trend following and managed futures for many, many decades have provided investors with an alternative source of expected return. But there's a, a big but to that, and that is they also offer some very important risks that investors may not be equipped to address. And so that's one of the reasons why managed futures for many years was really a niche investment that institutional investors were focused on, the sophisticated investors, family offices, high net worth individuals, people that understood that they were getting something very different. This notion of crisis alpha that my former student and, and portfolio manager of her own right, Katie Kaminsky, has written about, sure. I think that really highlights the, the unique aspects that managed futures brings to investors. What's happened in the last 10 years, though, is the retailization of managed futures. And that's a very important trend. It, it allows individual investors to be able to get access to this. But at the same time, it's also brought with it the kind of risks that managed futures have that not all retail investors are equipped to deal with, which means that when you're using managed futures in a retail environment, you need to be much more focused on risk management. You have to approach risk management in a way that you might not have had you been focusing just on institutional investors. Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely want to hear your views as well, uh, Sol. But I mean, I think, I mean, there are a lot of people out there saying that, yeah, I mean, we know that diversification, you know, is is meant to be the right things, you know, and it, it works in, in theory, but maybe not so much in practice. And maybe 2018 was kind of one example where we could say diversification is working eventually because there are big parts of the of the year where it, maybe it, it didn't work. But do we need to remind investors that the point of diversification is not about converting a negative return into a positive return, but rather it's about reducing the variability of the risk associated with returns in general? And therefore, you know, investors might confuse risk with familiarity, meaning that they, if they're not that familiar with managed futures, they, they, they automatically think it's more risky? Without a doubt, that's a great point. And I think that's one of the reasons why Managed Futures Association and the podcast that you're creating is so important. It, it really allows investors to develop a deeper understanding of this relatively unknown and complex investment style. I say relatively unknown because, of course, over the last 10 years, we've had a lot more money coming into the space. And so it's no longer the kind of niche investment that it used to be. But you're right that investor education plays a really important role. 
you know, one of my former colleagues at Alpha Simplex Group, Pete Martin, great marketing professional, he once said that if you're earning positive returns in all of your investments, you are not diversified. Uh, (laughs) Most investors would love to be able to earn money in all of their investments at the same time. But the whole point of diversification is that what you're looking for is a good average return across your investments over an extended period of time. And that means that at any one point in time, you're going to have certain underperforming investments. That's just the nature of diversification. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Roundtable. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes or SoundCloud and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes. It only takes a minute, and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Roundtable.